Well, it's so nice to see all of you here this evening. I can't tell if you're here because of Adventure Club or Song of Solomon. But you're here now, and so turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 1. And we'll finish chapter 1 this evening. If you haven't heard the introductory messages I did to Song of Solomon, I want to encourage you to go back and check those out and listen to those because I'm assuming that you have, because there's so much information about how to understand this book that we can't repeat every week. Song of Solomon chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 12, and I'll read the entire section and then we'll walk through it together. Beginning in verse 12, and this is, this is the bride-to-be speaking. We have named her Shulamith in, verse, in chapter 6. She is called the Shulamite, which can be a proper name, so we'll call her Shulamith. Verse 12, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. And then in verse 15, Solomon speaks, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then Shulamith speaks once again, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. The famous musical writing team, Rodgers and Hammerstein, wrote a cheerful song for the musical The King and I. It's a song called Getting to Know You. And probably some of you are already singing it in your head. It's a famous recording. The most famous recording of this song was done by Julie Andrews, who is uh, of Mary Poppins and the Sound of Music fame. But it's a very happy song. It's a delightful song. Some of the words just really celebrate the process of a growing relationship. Some of them say, getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy when I am with you, getting to know what to say, getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea. That's a wonderful little song. And in the musical, it's a song sung by a teacher to her young students. But it definitely has application to where we are here in Song of Solomon as Solomon and his bride-to-be Shulamith are now moving toward marriage. And in our text tonight, we see the growing kindled love between Solomon and Shulamith and how they're really being imprinted on one another's heart. And so I'm calling tonight's message, Getting to Know You. Now, before we get into the text, I want to draw your attention to a few recurring themes in the poem. And we've said these before, but they're, they're important. We'll see all of these highlighted tonight. And let me just highlight three or four themes that we'll see tonight and we'll see all through the book. And this is really just by way of introduction. The theme of fragrances. This is often representative, though, of more than just the fragrance. And we'll see that tonight. In just tonight's text, we have three. The fragrances of nard and myrrh and the henna blossom. We have the theme of the outdoors. Tonight, we see vineyards. We see an oasis. We see various trees. But as we progress through the poem, the theme of the outdoors begins to take on more subtle meanings when the the gardens and the vineyards represent symbolically the the bodies in the union of the married couple. And so tonight's premarital text kind of gives a nod to the future, to the building up toward the total union at the proper time. We also see the theme of spending time together. There's no substitute for spending time together, as we said last time. 
And it's meaningful time. It's not just time in the same geographical location, but time to talk and to interact. And then we see the theme of verbal affirmation of one another. We said this last time as well, that all through the poem, they use words to express their love for one another. And and we said before, how important are words? Words are the method by which that God chose to give us knowledge of himself. And so the theme of fragrances and the outdoors and spending time together, uh, the theme of verbal affirmation of one another. And, And just in case you are wondering whether this is okay or not, Song of Solomon is meant to make you smile. It's meant to be delightful to you. And so many of these pictures help us with that. But tonight I'd like to focus on their process of getting to know one another. This has an obvious application to the couple in the earliest stages of their relationship, but I promise you that this text contains terrific, uh, yea, even convicting reminders for the married couples as well among us. So let's jump right in. I want to give you four intentional ways to get to know one another. Four intentional ways to get to know one another that we see here in verses 12 through 17. The first way is fully open your heart. To fully open your heart. And we'll begin and just walk through this verse by verse. Verse 12, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, this is important to understand what's happening here. This is describing a scene in which Solomon and Shulamith are separated. They're not together at the moment. They're not with one another. And I don't know another place to do this, so I need to make a quick little side note here in case some of you didn't hear this. But you may recall in one of our introductory messages to Song of Solomon, we outlined the major views of the book. And one of the specific issues was how many main characters are there in this poem? Those who take what is called the three-character view maintain that Song of Solomon is the story of how a plain shepherd wins the heart of a country girl and beats out King Solomon for her love. We said that we don't hold to that view One of the reasons that view is weak is that you have a lot of difficulty explaining how the king in verse 12, who's supposed to be the loser in love here, is now somehow a different person than my beloved of verses 13 and 14. There's nothing in the text to indicate that Shulamith has suddenly shifted somewhere in the white space between verse 12 and verse 13 to thinking about two different men. Well, now that we've cleared that up, again, this is a scene in which they're not together at the moment. And Solomon is said to be on his couch, which is an interesting choice of wording here. At its base, this word in Hebrew means a round banqueting table. The couch reference may refer to the practice of partially reclining at a table, but really that was much more common in Jesus' day and less common in the days of Solomon and his father David. But the word is used three other times in the Old Testament and it never means a couch. Neither does it mean a round banqueting table. What it means, and see if you can catch this, this correlation, it means something much more general, that which is around you, your surroundings. So it's not something that's round except all the stuff that's around you. And it's used in a way to mean your surroundings which are familiar to you. And so it's better to understand that this is Solomon in his surroundings. In other words, he's at home. He's in the, in the king's palace, King David. Uh, remember that Solomon began as a co-regent for several years, so both of them were called king, King David and King Solomon. 
And so they're separated. And what's happening to Solomon while he's home and away from Shulamith? Shulamith says, while he was in his surroundings, while he's in his place, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, it's very interesting that she is said to have any nard. Nard was an extremely scarce and expensive perfume, or it could be an ointment from the Himalayan region of India. It was uh, woody and spicy and, and musty smelling. It's thought to have an aphrodisiac effect, but it wasn't always used for that purpose. But having nard was a sign of wealth, or it was a way to store wealth. Uh, nard could be kind of the mutual fund of the day, that you would store your wealth in the form of this ointment. And you've seen this in the New Testament. You recall John chapter 12, which records Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointing Jesus with pure nard. In fact, the text says that she anointed him with a pound of nard. This was a Roman pound of 12 ounces. So that was a year's salary. And so it was an expensive, very rare ointment. Now, why is it interesting that Shulamith here would have any nard? Because she was the daughter of farmhands, farmers and shepherds who leased land from the king. They were tenant farmers. You remember back in verse 10 from last time that Solomon has also given her jewelry. The only way she's going to have nard is if Solomon gave it to her. Gave it to her as a gift. So it's kind of building up the pressure on this guy. First he gives her jewelry, then perfume. So we're seeing this list that's very classic now for 3,000 years. So understanding all that background, let's set this scene up. The two are not together at the moment, but they had been very recently. How do we know this? The king is back in his surroundings, and by implication, she's in her surroundings. Very, very different, but they've recently been together. How do we know this? Because he can still smell her perfume. He can still feel the lingering on his clothing or maybe on his cheeks. It may be speaking here of just the memory of her perfume invading her thoughts. But in any case, they've been together recently. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of lovesickness. This is all he can think about. He's obsessed. She is on his mind. This isn't an infatuation. This isn't a crush. This isn't just a momentary yearning on Solomon's part. No, the very thought of her is now overwhelming him. And remember, he's a king in training He has important duties and responsibilities and he's supposed to be learning this and that. And yet there he is in his surroundings, in his home and the shepherd girl Shulamith's fragrance and memory is invading his soul. That's all he can think about. So what does this mean? It means that Solomon has completely opened his heart to her. They've had their demonstration of true friendship declaring their affection for one another back in verses 7 through 11. And now both their hearts are wide open to one another. And in biblical terms, the idea of one's heart, what does it mean that their heart is open to one another? It means that they're vulnerable with their innermost selves. They're vulnerable to each other. Let me talk to the not yet married who are or will be listening to this. I understand this level of vulnerability can feel unsafe. This is where you get hurt, isn't it? It's because we're sinners, we're revealing our innermost hearts. It might even jeopardize a relationship because at first you don't want another person to know who you really are, right? It's been said that when you walk down the aisle, about half of what you gave was a lie because you're just doing anything to get to the, to get to the wedding. 
And so it's scary to let somebody know who you are because eventually whether they find out, they find out you're a sinner. And then there begins that balance of am I willing to put up with X amount of sin in this person for the rest of my life? And so it is difficult. The Puritan pastor, uh, Richard Baxter, who lived in the 17th century, he wrote a very short but a, a practical treatment of his understanding of the Bible's view of marriage, along with giving some pastoral counsel. And I'm going to be referring to some of Baxter's work along the way. In thinking about those not yet married and the issue of opening the heart, he gives two important pieces of counsel. First, he says, don't marry until you're sure you can love entirely, until you can make a decision to be all in, to be completely present, to be totally committed to fully opening your heart to another And he gives a second piece of advice, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but leave it as close to his original wording as possible. He said, do not be hasty, but know beforehand all the imperfections which may tempt you to despise your future mate. It's good advice. And he quotes Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In other words, don't make a decision about your future till you really, really know somebody. This doesn't mean you're seeking sinless perfection, someone good enough for you. That's actually a form of pride. But it does mean evaluating whether or not you can fully open yourself to another human being. And, and certainly you're not opening yourself up to someone who has so many heavy sin issues that that will become the whole focus of your marriage. And so there is that getting to know you part. What about the already married? You say, well, I already know my spouse. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions. When was the last time you had a truly deep and meaningful conversation? I mean, you are, after all, one flesh. You are one mind. You are one heart. When was the last time you had a best friend conversation? Or are you perhaps eager to open your heart and not so eager to hear the open heart of the other in your marriage? This one-sidedness is very discouraging and it's not representative of a one-flesh relationship. Are you able to sit and truly listen until the other one can say, I really think you get me right now in this. You understand my heart on this particular issue. Or more importantly, are you able to sit and listen when you don't yet get it? And everybody knows I'm talking to the men. When you don't yet get it, you're saying, just give me a fourth time through this. Just help me to understand Are you able to sit and listen even if you don't like what you're hearing? When was the last time you asked deeply personal questions like how is your walk with the Lord and what are your greatest fears and what can I do to better serve you at the heart level or how can I be that friend with whom you're open and real and true? It's always sad to me to see marriages where the best friends are not one another but others. It's sad to me when the married couple settles into a routine of not getting to that heart level anymore, but just sort of functions. And it can happen. We understand that. But if that's you and you know it, then start talking, start listening, start rediscovering one another. Make the choice to be vulnerable and allow vulnerability. Go back and remember why it is you got married in the first place. And if I could speak to the men for a moment who might rather drink motor oil with a straw than have a two-hour meaningful conversation, could I encourage you to examine your own heart and search out maybe even some selfish motives? Practice sitting and truly listening. Maybe you need to be put on a program where you start with 15 minutes and then work to 20 and keep going until you can do better. 
reflecting back what your wife is saying so that she knows that you're getting it or at least trying to get it. What does this do? This is bonding. This is important. This is the glue that, that, that brings you together. This is one flesh in action. Fully open your heart. It's the first intentional way to get to know one another. The second intentional way to get to know one another, nurture what I'll call an oasis-like relationship. Nurture an oasis-like relationship. Now, we're getting to some more fragrances, but this time there's more of a symbolic meaning to them as they represent the closeness and the affection that Shulamith has for Solomon. This is still Shulamith speaking in verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now, myrrh was very common, but it was a, it was a nice scent. It was gathered from a South Arabian tree, It was used as perfume. It was even used in the holy oil of the tabernacle. Exodus 30 tells us this. It was used in the embalming process of the dead because it it helped a a corpse not smell so bad. It has a woody and a sweet smell as well. Very, very earthy. It could be rendered in liquid form or a solid resin, sort of uh, gum-like deal, which could be carried in a small cloth pouch. It could be put in a sachet to give off fragrance over a period of time, almost like a necklace. And Shulamith gives the picture of wearing the sachet like a necklace filled with the sweet smell of myrrh. But you notice it doesn't say she's actually wearing one. She's making a point. Solomon to her is like a sachet of myrrh. Now, there is the physical reference to her body here, and many ascribe sexual overtones and even activity to this section. And certainly there's an aim in that direction. But chapter 4, verse 12 says that Shulamith is a locked garden and a sealed spring. She is a virgin. She is pure. She is holy. We haven't gotten to the wedding or the wedding night yet in chapter 4. So what is this speaking of when it says that that the sachet of myrrh, that he's like a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts? Is this a sexual reference? It's not at all. It's her way of saying he's, he's at the entrance to my heart. He is on my heart. This indicates how close she feels to him even when they're apart. This isn't a sexual reference. It's a personal reference that he's close to me, he's close to my heart, that area of a woman's body that is so personal, so reserved, especially in a culture where women cover themselves from head to toe. Now there is at least the implied hope that someday he won't be like a sachet of myrrh lying next to her, but it will be him lying next to her. But this is speaking of her heart. In fact, the structure of Song of Solomon helps us to understand that this is her thought. Remember that Song of Solomon is a masterpiece of literary mirror structure. It's called the chiastic structure. And in the biggest version, the biggest picture of this structure where the end mirrors the beginning and back and forth, here, still near the beginning of the poem, we would reference the mirror-like structure near the end in chapter 8, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. But where she wants Solomon to assure her of long-term commitment, and she says, set me as a seal upon your what? Heart. This is what she's looking for. She pictures him at the doorway to her heart. And she in turn wants that place with him as well. And so of course the oasis-like relationship must include the element of total commitment. An oasis is no good if the water might dry up at any time. She goes on to describe the nature of this budding relationship. In verse 12, verse 14 rather, 
My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. And we get to our third fragrance here. Now again, it doesn't say she's wearing the perfume of the henna blossom, but that he is to her like that, like the blossom. Now this is an important geographic reference for us to understand. Engedi was an oasis in a desert wilderness. The vineyards of Engedi were well known in the time for growing exotic spices and plants that were made into cosmetics and perfumes. It was sort of the place where all the women's products were grown. That's kind of what was there. It was the best of the best. Uh, We said back in verse 9 last time, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. And we said that means that she is the best of the best. And one of the shrubs that grew naturally at Engedi was the henna bush. It was a, a common shrub in ancient Israel with a yellow blossom. Now I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of a weary traveler. There's only one way to travel. You used your feet and you are tired and you're thirsty and you're dusty and you're hot. And as you approach a hilltop on the road, you begin to smell something like vanilla and almond mixed together. And as you top the hill, suddenly there's green and there's vineyards and there's orchards. And everywhere you look, there are yellow henna blossoms that give that vanilla almond scent. It's not so much that Shulamith here is speaking of wearing the henna fragrance, but that she comes upon the henna shrub and just stops and takes a deep inhaled breath of this natural bouquet. She calls it a cluster, a bouquet of the yellow blossoms. And this is how she's picturing Solomon. That in the middle of a rugged wilderness, he's like a lush oasis with palm trees and vineyards and water, green and blooming, and the breeze carries the henna blossoms, welcoming fragrance to her nostrils, welcoming her to the oasis. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And most importantly, Isn't that a lovely goal to have for your marriage, to be an oasis to one another? Once again, the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter gives wisdom from Scripture. To the yet to be married, he says very practically, and I'm paraphrasing, choose a good spouse in the first place. That's good advice. A spouse who is truly good and kind, full of holiness and virtue in the Lord. And he quotes Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. But it's important that we make certain that continues to be the testimony. To the married, Baxter appeals to the idea of justice, to remember what you owe your spouse. And this is something that, that I hadn't heard in a long time, and it's very interesting how he puts this. He writes this, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, Remember that justice commands you to love one that has forsaken all the world for you, one who is contented to be the companion of your labors and sufferings and be a sharer in all things with you, and that must be your companion until death. In other words, don't be a bait and switch in that after your spouse has given up every option to spend her life with you, now she has to struggle with regret. Paul reminded husbands in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Uh, the, The Greek says, do not be embittered against them. And once again, the simple question to ask yourself is, am I being an oasis to my spouse? Or am I the desert from which my spouse wishes to find an oasis? In a harsh world, am I 
a word of gentleness. In a sinful world, am I an example of righteousness? In a painful world, am I a healing salve? Or in a thirsty world, am I a drink of cool water? Be an oasis. Our intentional ways to get to know one another, fully open your heart, nurture an oasis-like relationship. The third way to intentionally get to know one another, admire the best of the other. Admire the best in the other. Now, for the first time in this section, Solomon speaks. He doesn't speak as much as Shulamith does all throughout the book. This is primarily a poem from a woman's vantage point, but he does speak here in verse 15. And he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, in verses 12, 13, and 14, they're most likely apart. Beginning here in verse 15, now they're speaking to one another. Now they are together. And twice he says, You are beautiful. By now his thoughts of her are so filled with love and delight that perhaps her actual physical appearance isn't so important as the fact that his view of her is now colored by his love for her. This is the same reason that a 90-year-old man can tell his wife, you're so beautiful, because his thoughts of her are colored by his love. In fact, we get two other hints that he's thinking of more than just her physical beauty. First, he calls her my love. This isn't just a, a shallow term of endearment. It has overtones of companionship. Some translations call it my darling. And that's not just, again, a pet name. It means you're my most special one. You're the top. Solomon himself values a long-lasting lifetime relationship. At least the young Solomon does in his elder years in reflection on his moral failures. He wrote in Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so he values this long-lasting lifetime relationship. But we get a second hint that he's thinking of her, her personhood as well. He tells her, your eyes are doves. This may be referring to the color of her eyes. It's probably more than that. It may be referring to the quality of softness. But traditions of the rabbis said that the eyes are associated with a lovely personality, with a kind disposition, with a wonderful bearing there's a degree of mystery there's a a degree of enchantment with her eyes as well he refers to her eyes later as capturing him song of solomon 4 verse 9 you have captivated my heart my sister my bride you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace he says her eyes are overpowering chapter 6 verse 5 turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me he says you don't look at me anymore it's too much for me And so her eyes are associated with her lovely traits, but they're also captivating to him. All of us know how to communicate with our eyes in some mysterious way. The eyes combined with the rest of our facial features, we can communicate anger or happiness or desire or surprise, and you're just born knowing how to do this. And so it seems that there's a team effort here happening She's giving positive communication and he's seeing the very best in her. Both seem to be intentionally admiring the very best in the other. Remember back in verses 12 and 13 that she's viewing Solomon in the very best terms. She's cultivating positive thoughts of him. And then enters our sin nature, doesn't it? 
Our sin nature makes it so natural to think the very worst of the one of whom we should be nurturing the very best thoughts. I've spent many thousands of hours doing counseling and I have never yet had two strangers walk into my office and say, you know, we just passed each other and we hate each other's guts and we need to talk this through. No, it's people who love one another the most. The most, the majority of my time I've ever spent in counseling is with married couples. And where does the, where do the problems start? Starts in the mind. Every time. Some sinful desire in us to demand that we deserve a perfect spouse made in my image it drives us to be overcome by terrible thoughts which of course lead to words and actions that are sinful. I don't remember the exact statistic but there's a very high statistic that the number of murders in the United States every year is between spouses. And where did that start? It started in the mind. You remember that Jesus taught us in Matthew twelve thirty four that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so just trying to watch your tongue, that's really just working on the, the external result of what's actually happening in your heart. And so we ought to refuse to cultivate, refuse to simmer on, refuse to stew in terrible thoughts of the other. And since the other one is a sinner, that can be a tall order. Instead, you discipline yourself to be thankful that when a negative thought crops up, you thank the Lord for the numerous blessings that that person represents, that that person brings to your life. And really, this is a choice of what you choose to notice, isn't it? What really is the point of a tragic lifetime of continually noticing the flaws and the foibles and the weaknesses, or worse, trying to correct every single one of them? What is the point? The point is that this reveals a lifetime idolatry of self that uses a spouse's weakness to grow in the belief that you deserve better. I have a simple question. Do you really want to get to the end of your life on this earth having murdered your spouse in your heart for years on end? Returning to the wisdom of Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, he counsels husbands, and again I paraphrase, Take more notice of the good that is in your wives than of of her faults. Let not the observation of their faults make you forget or overlook their virtues. And he considers Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine how that would transform your heart? How that would transform your marriage if you truly put that into practice? My wife is more significant than me. My husband is more significant than me. And what do you have when you have two people trying to outserve the other one? That's a godly marriage. Baxter continues with husbands, quote, Don't magnify her imperfections until they drive you crazy. Those are his words, not mine. Excuse them as far as is right in the Lord. Or as Peter would say, love covers a multitude of sins. Consider also your own infirmities and how much your wives must bear with you. The difference between wives and husbands, if I could just throw a little fatherly advice in here, is wives know what their husbands are putting up with. Husbands don't know what their wives are putting up with. We just tend to be less aware. By the way, this, uh, this idea of admiring the best is founded in what God has done for you in salvation. 
That's where it comes from. Psalm 103, beginning of verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How about this thought? Since God has chosen to view your saved spouse as righteous, how about you join him in that view? And see the best. Remembering that the coming glorified version of your spouse exists in the mind of God and this will come about. Just not in this lifetime completely. But can you imagine what it would be like to always view your spouse as God does? You know what that looks like? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 And if you're admiring the best of the other, then you'll completely agree with our fourth intentional way to get to know one another. First, fully open your heart. Second, nurture an oasis-like relationship. Third, admire the best of the other. And now the result of this, fourth, build each other up. Build each other up. And now Shulamith speaks once again, and once again she's building him up. Verse 16, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Now, let's set the scene. Remember, they started being together here in verse 15. They're together. They're away from the troubles of the world. And what is she doing? She is playing house. She's playing house. The end of verse 16 The word for couch here is different than the word translated couch in verse 12, which speaks of his surroundings. This word for couch speaks of a couch or maybe a bed. Why would she say our couch is green? Is she just wishing for uh, colors from 1973? Is that what she's going for here? No, they're out in the forest somewhere. And it appears that they're laying down together on the floor of the forest, perhaps having gathered up some soft leafy branches to make a pallet. And which way are they looking? Well, if you look at what they're looking at, they're looking at the tops of the trees. So where are they? They're laying down together on the floor of the forest and they're playing house. They're looking up and she's pretending. Here's our house. The beams are the cedar trees and the rafters are the pine trees. She's shifting to seeing life as lived with him. She's shifting to the unity of the coming marriage and they're dreaming of being together. Shulamith won't have the simple life of her parents, living off the land, having simple times. She'll be married to literally the most sought-after man on planet Earth. And so here in this quiet forest moment, she imagines that they're home and it's just the two of them together. If you think about it, you can almost hear the the breeze in the trees and you can smell the cedar. The pine trees may actually be speaking of juniper trees. Juniper trees look a lot like cedar trees and they can be cone-shaped, but but junipers also can grow really tall with some magnificent twisted wood patterns, which she imagines as being the rafters in their house. And in this peaceful, quiet moment where they're all alone, she speaks blessings to him. And she speaks three blessings. First, she affirms his value. She affirms his value. She says, you are beautiful. This is much more than just saying that he's handsome. 
This gets more into the realm of affirmation of his worth, affirmation of his value. You are valuable to me. Not just in a general sense because you're a human being made in the image of God, but you're valuable to me because my heart is connected to you and there's no one else that I can be connected at this level. The second blessing, she affirms her emotional closeness to him. She affirms her emotional closeness to him. She calls him my beloved. This is a different word than my love in verse 15 that he uses. This word here means that you're the object of my love because you're, I'm close to you. Now, in our culture, we would freak out about this, but it also is the same word to mean my uncle. But not in the sense of you're actually my, my mother's brother or my dad's brother. It's the sense of calling somebody uncle that you're not related to because you're close. And she says, we're close. I'm close to you. She's opened her heart to him. So she affirms his value. She affirms her emotional closeness to him. The third blessing that she speaks to him. She affirms her appreciation for his demeanor. She affirms her appreciation for his demeanor. How he conducts himself with her. She calls him truly delightful. This is a word that means you're pleasant. You're agreeable to be with. All of us have to remember to be pleasant with our spouse. I think we tend to know in the back of our minds that they're kind of stuck with us and so we reserve our grumpiest selves for them. We walk in the door with a sneer and, and a grimace instead of with a smile. But she affirms her appreciation for his demeanor. She's building him up as the natural outflow of the earlier point of admiring the best about him. She affirms his value. She affirms her, her closeness to him and her appreciation for his demeanor with her. Now, you might say, well, they're just googly-eyed because that's what all new couples do. Oh, you're the prettiest. Oh, you're the most handsome. And that's what new couples do. They gush with compliments to each other because that's what new couples do. Long after they're married, chapter 8 records Shulamith's desire for Solomon in words that can only be described as intense, passionate, and forceful. Why is this possible? Because she has continued building him up. First thinking the best, and then following that up with speaking the best. Now it is very true, and this is useful to us, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to help one another in our marriages with sin or with weaknesses, but the key word is help. That's the purpose. Can I ask a very tender question if you're married? Are you in the habit of constant correction? And yes, correction is needed and is helpful, but is that the normal diet of your day or is that the exception? If it's the normal diet, why? What is it you're looking for? What is it you think you'll find at the end of that horrible rainbow? What idol are you worshiping at to believe that convincing your spouse that he or she is continually inadequate and never measures up? What's that going to accomplish? Are you looking for, at the end of your life, your spouse to say, honey, you're right. I truly am the worst person on planet Earth. Oh, good, I can be happy now. Interestingly, the book of Proverbs uses the metaphor of water to speak of two different kinds of words or interactions. Proverbs 18.4 says, The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. In other words, the waters are a stream of life-giving, uplifting words. Conversely, 
Proverbs 19.13, and this can apply to wives or husbands. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. It's like a dripping faucet that soon becomes all you can hear. So the question to ask yourself, are you the dripping water of a leaking faucet or a stream of life-giving words and water to your spouse, to your mate? Are you trying to win the contest for correcting the most weaknesses of anyone in history or, or worse, trying to change things that are matters of personality and preference, not issues of sin or right and wrong? The husband of Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 story extols the virtues of his wife when he boasts of her at the city gates. Proverbs 31, 23 tells of his boasting and listen to one of his boasts in verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And this principle, of course, is not limited to wives only. Husbands can be terrible revilers cutting and digging at their wives and habitually insensitive without listening to her cares and concerns. Instead, 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And that really ought to start in the marriage relationship. By the way, this building up includes with others. One of the things I've been so appreciative in in my own marriage is that we made a pact a long time ago that whatever disagreements we may have behind closed doors, we will always defend one another to others. Richard Baxter says this in no uncertain terms. Also, you must be careful to guard the honor of one another. You must not divulge but conceal the failings of each other. The reputation of each other must be as dear to you as your own. It is a sinful and unfaithful practice of many, both husbands and wives, who among their friends are discussing the faults of each other, which they are required in tenderness to cover up. Many peevish persons will aggravate all the faults of their spouse behind their backs. And he cites James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, my brothers. Well, I have one application in kind of two parts that really encapsulates this whole idea of getting to know you, of having that tender and loving and giving and selfless relationship. I want to go back to the idea of being an oasis to one another. And after we make this application, I have one question. To the yet to be married, this week, pray about your motivation to be married. Pray about being ready spiritually to being a giving and selfless oasis for whomever God chooses to place in your path. In other words, ask the Lord to help you be a gift to someone, not to be, uh, to, to be gifted someone. Ask the Lord to give you someone. We, we had a precious couple in our church some time back who moved for family reasons, but it was one spouse marrying another who had been the victim of an accident and whose mental capacities were now greatly diminished. And they married anyway, one spouse desiring to be a gift to the one who had needs and help. Precious, precious couple. And to the married, ask the question this week, how can I be an oasis for you? How can I be an oasis for you? And then actually do one or two of those things. I have a final question. 
What is the motivation to fully open your heart? What is the motivation to nurture an oasis-like relationship? What is the motivation to admire the best in the other? What is the motivation to build each other up? What's the real heart motive? You might be listening to this and be married to an unbeliever where, where you don't really have any hope of a lot of reciprocation. But you can still do these things. So what is the motivation? God placed Song of Solomon in his inspired scripture to teach us to go all in, to draw near to our spouses because that's pleasing to him. So the motivation is not to improve your marriage, although that may happen. The motivation is not to secretly try to get more out of your spouse for yourself, although that may happen. The motivation is not to show off for others, although others may now look to your marriage as a model. But the motivation, very simply, is to strive to love and to please your Savior who gave his life to purchase your soul and to forgive you of all your sins. And listen carefully. If your motivation is to please Christ, then the results don't matter. They don't matter. So let the God-given design of the marital relationship be the vehicle by which you demonstrate your gratitude for your salvation in Christ. Isn't it wonderful that the God of the universe has given you a means by which to express love to him through another human being? And he receives that if you will obey. I hope tonight's been helpful to you and I hope that the Lord will drive these truths deeply into your heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for your gift of marriage. It is truly the building block of our society. It saddens us when the world is trying its very best to tear apart marriages, to even redefine marriage, to redefine gender. And yet we go back to the ancient words, the words which were true in the mind of God long before they were written in ink. They're true today. They're living and active. They're sharp like a two-edged sword. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these words from verses 12 through 17 and you would penetrate our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those yet to be married, that you would bring them together with the person of your choice, that they could be an oasis to one another and they could walk together through this life honoring Christ by loving one another. And I pray for all those who are married in our midst, Lord, that you would give each of us a rekindled desire to get to know one another, to be friends at the deepest, most wonderful level, to be those companions that you created marriage to, to give us. Help us, Lord, to receive these words and to grow in our ability to truly cherish the other. Help us, Lord, to do what Philippians 2 said, to consider the other as more important than ourselves. I count myself in that prayer, all of our elders, our deacons, every married couple here. Help us, Lord, to live this out. And may our marriages be a testimony to the world of what a changed life looks like in Christ. And may our marriages even be opportunities, Lord, for witnessing the gospel of Christ to the lost. Let us glorify and honor you by obeying you in these things. And we would pray for Christ's glory in his sake. Amen.